Across America and around the world, famous vintners and favorite destinations. We share the stories behind the wines. Welcome to Vintage, hosted by the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack. of the show as we head to Southern Oregon in the Umpqua Valley to spend time with one of the legends in the Oregon wine industry, Earl Jones from Abacella. Earl and his wife Hilda are two of the most modest, unassuming people you'll ever meet, and they might cringe when I say that they are titans of the Oregon wine industry, but it's true, and then some. Together, they put Tempranillo on the map in America. They sent a statement to the world that Southern Oregon is very serious about producing award-winning wines. And from a broader perspective, they've proven to the outside world that Oregon in general has so much more to offer than just spectacular Pinot Noir. Earl and Hilda have been traveling quite a bit lately, but I caught up with the patriarch of Southern Oregon wine recently when he returned back to those rolling hills southwest of Roseburg, just outside Winston. And my first question, how did a young man who spent his formative years in the Midwest and South acquire a taste for, of all things, Spanish wines? Well, I was born in Michigan. My parents then moved to a farm in the extreme western part of Kentucky, uh, right on the Illinois-Missouri border. And we grew up uh, with row crops, uh, soybeans, corn, wheat, but no grapes. Or, well, we had an orchard. That was the closest we got. So you decided to pursue a career in the medical field. Why was that? Well, I'm fundamentally a scientist. I uh, kind of cut my teeth on that kind of thing uh, you know, before even high school. I was really interested in chemistry, biology, uh, those kind of uh, driving, you know, biological fundamental forces. So that led me to get into science. I didn't really want to be a physician, but I obtained a medical doctor degree anyway and pursued research in a university studying uh, immunology and host defense mechanisms. In fact, that's where Hilda and I met, was in a laboratory. And so we met and uh, ended up married uh, within a year after that. We shared interest in wine. Uh, I was uh, already profoundly interested in Tempranillo. That led us to many trips to Spain, and we simply fell in love with the Spanish culture, their cuisine. Uh, wonderful place. How does a kid from the country fall in love with Tempranillo, though? Tell me, you kind of fast-forwarded through that part of, of the history because I'm curious how you fell in love with that varietal specifically and how you were introduced to wine in the first place. In the Midwest, uh, back at that time, hardly anyone drank anything uh, except iced tea and coffee. Yeah. And milk, of course. <laughs> but uh, so when I was in medical school, I had the opportunity to enjoy a bottle of Puyf Puse. I was high 23 or 24 years of age, and I thought all uh, alcoholic beverages tasted bad until that experience. <laughs> that, that, I guess, would be the beginning of the change in my mind. Then I discovered Tempranillo as a variety. Actually, I didn't know. I discovered Rioja wines while living in San Francisco uh, and doing uh, a residency training at the University of California Med Center uh, there in the city. And 
I could afford the wines. Uh, they were good. They went with the kind of food that I enjoyed. And so that just led me to chase the hierarchical tree of Tempranillo quality. You and Hilda met in college and then walk us through that period after that, because it wasn't like you went directly into the wine industry. You were in the medical field for quite some time, were you? Yeah, about 25 or 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I did a lot of research. I published, uh, I don't know, 100 and some odd uh, original papers and reviewed literature, and I thought I'd never leave medicine. And, and then I, you know, just sort of drifted into my love of Tempranillo, and that was uh, that was the driving force in our lives, really. Well, you took a bold move in doing that. Talk about going through that process from leaving. I'm sure a very well tenured position and a profession you were familiar with, and it sounds like literally packing things up and moving cross country. Talk about what went into that decision, and you know why you did it. Well, we were really passionate about Tempranillo, and uh, there was a you know when a mountain is unclimbed, that's a challenge, and uh, you know whereas uh, you know most of the uh, international grape varieties like uh, Cabernet, Chardonnay, Merlot, Pinot Noir had been grown successfully in America, um, that was not the case with Tempranillo. It had been, um, uh, you know, pretty much a failure in uh, North America. Been grown here, but used for other purposes like blending to jug wine and stuff. Uh, I thought that was just sacrilege for the for the fourth most widely planted grape on the planet to not be made into varietal wide wine in America. And you know, as a researcher, we looked at that critically and decided that uh, it had been grown in the wrong terroirs. And uh, we thought that the key in Spain was uh, a match to a particular terroir with a you know, six-month growing season, uh, uh, a lot of blistering summer heat, uh, very little rainfall. And so we searched America, identified the Umpqua Valley as a, a prototypic area for that, bought land and moved here, put the kids in the truck and rolled away. <laughs> I just find that remarkable even being an Oregon native myself, that here you are 2,000-plus miles away. I know you're a smart guy and you did your research, but you know, and you're looking to plant and grow this varietal. I'm sure that Oregon wasn't the first place that popped into your mind, was it? I mean, you had to do some pretty extensive research to find the Umpqua Valley, right? Oh, no, it took uh, three years, uh, three years plus of, of studying uh, climate data. Uh, yeah, it was very difficult to even obtain the data back at that time. There was no internet. Um, uh, our son Greg Jones helped immensely in that he was uh, in a graduate program at the University of Virginia and had access to the forerunner of the internet, the ARPNET, and so he would could obtain uh, those uh, old uh, perforated tear sheets. Uh, you know, I think they were eleven by seventeen, and that's what we did all the calculations from. Now. Tell me the truth here. I know you probably came out for a visit at first before you packed up and moved, or did you just literally throw it in the car and say, we're there? No, no, no. I came out. Uh, you know, we looked meticulously. I looked in Walla Walla, looked in Boise, in the Snake River Valley. We looked in uh, uh, multiple areas in Oregon, particularly in southern Oregon, uh, and then settled on the Umpqua as being the 
safest place because there was little uh, risk of a uh, deep winter freeze that might kill uh, an untested vine. And, but it had the right climate. And so with that, we purchased uh, what we thought was an ideal piece of property. And uh, then we uh, owned that for about a year or so and then moved out. Okay, so you had the farming background growing up, so it wasn't like you'd never been on a plow or been around a, a farm, but that's what the wine business is, right? It's farming. So did you feel like when you made the decision to do this that you were sort of going back to your roots? Uh, no. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> my dad came out with me uh, on one of the trips when we were I'd already bought the property, and he looked at it, and he said, son, you've lost your mind. You can't, you can't farm hillsides like this. <laughs> you know, he preferred flatland, rich, uh, Mississippi River Valley uh, uh, <laughs> kind of soil, Yeah, soil 10 feet deep uh, <laughs> that could produce 300 bushels of corn. But that doesn't work with wine grapes. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm sure it was uh, quite the adjustment, you know, see, seeing those hillsides, but you— decide to really literally plant the flag for Tempranillo and put this varietal on the map. And here you are moving cross country. Did you ever have any doubts that you were going to be successful or did you just charge on? I didn't really have any doubts. I'd, I'd done the, the research. Yeah, there was a chance we'd fail. I mean, I'm sure other people had tried, but I tried to be very thorough. And uh, we had everything stacked in our favor, I guess if it hadn't have worked, I would have uh, done something else. <laughs> then we wouldn't be talking today. <laughs> well, you obviously had a little bit of uh, intuition knowing that Hillcrest had a vineyard in that general vicinity, right? So, I mean, wine grapes had been planted there. You weren't the first winery there, right? I mean, there were others. Oh, no, we weren't the first winery here, but people were growing, uh, you know, Cabernet, Merlot, Chardonnay, Riesling. Uh, no one here in Oregon or Washington or Idaho had dreamed of growing Tempranillo on a commercial basis. There had been some experimental plots at, uh, at um, Oregon State, but uh, there had been uh, nothing, nothing put in the ground with a serious commitment. Uh, you know, we we jumped at that, uh, got our mudwood out of California from the same vines that hadn't fared well down there. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Uh, brought them up here, planted them, and uh, bingo. Uh, just immediately successful. What were your neighbors thinking when they saw you come in and plant Tempranillo? Did they tell you not to do it? Did they warn you, or were they curiously watching from afar? I, th I think they thought I was some... Uh, uh, I don't know, some uh, <laughs> a professor that had sort of lost his marbles, <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were going to sit back and watch and see what happened. That's a great story. So we appreciate you sharing this, Earl. Um, in the time, I guess it's been, what, over 20 years now, Twenty going on 25 years since you made next that Next year will be the 25th year. Yeah, 25 years next year. It's hard to believe. I think we first met probably 15 years ago, and um, now it's that time. I think, you know, you've you've done it, and we're going to talk about the wine and the other wines you make and, and the awards you win, but are you at that point now where you stop, and you and Hilda, who, you know, you've got, you're an icon, she's an icon in the Oregon industry. You've done something that 
a lot of people would not have even attempted. Do you ever stop and, you know, say to yourself, wow, we did it? Uh, not much because, you know, we what we realized, I guess, pretty early on well we had a we had an extra bounty if you if you would um our vineyard just happened uh, you know we picked it strictly based on climate but it happens to be bisected by a very significant fault line uh, probably the most significant fault line from a time uh, timeline point of view in the state of Oregon and it demarcates uh, a split between 50 million years old Oregon coastal terrain to the north and 250 million year old uh, Klamath mountain terrain to the south. And that was just dumb luck, you know. We didn't know that was there. And But that tumulted uh, vineyard hillsides uh, have given us lots of slopes and uh, microclimates. And so as soon as we realized that it didn't take long, you know, I was a novice winemaker. And so it wasn't my skills that made uh, our first wine successful. It was a climate. I mean, it was obvious. And so that just really uh, piqued our our research interest. And we said, man, uh, let's take advantage of this uh, topsy-turvy uh, hillsides that we have, and let's try site climate matching other grapes. And so that's still fun. Man, it's still going on. You're not sitting back resting on your laurels. That's what you're saying. Yeah, but it's too much, it's too much fun to... Uh, uh, try to figure out how to, to grow grapes better and grow new grapes and that kind of thing. I was a winemaker for the first 10 years and uh, for a decade, I guess we should say. And then Andrew Wenzel, uh, an Oregonian, uh, has been our winemaker for the last decade plus. Uh, he's a much better winemaker than, than I was or am. Uh, but we share a sort of a root philosophy of, uh, that uh, the wines are really made in the vineyard, and then it's our job to uh, protect their character, their terroir, and their quality. And so that's where we are now. I'm, I have, um, I, I play some role in the winemaking, but I really Andrew and I taste together. Uh, but you know, we've gone ahead to just have so much fun. Uh, like we we did the first Albarino in the Northwest, and we're now one of the largest producers. And certainly the longest producer of that, uh, continuous producer of that uh, wine in America. We we do Grenache and have all kinds of fun with it. We've uh, we're the first uh, grow and bottle tint to Amarillo in in the USA. Uh, lots of fun. Boy, it sure sounds like it. Talk about Grenache, would you? I know that's a varietal I love, and I hope that we see more and get to taste more of it. Yeah, Grenache is a great grape. It's. Uh, uh, it's, its true name is Garnacha. It's uh, endemic, uh, not in what's the right word, indigenous uh, to the uh, Zaragoza area and eastern uh, Navarre and Rioja area of Spain. That's its nativity. Uh, the French uh, changed its name from Garnacha to Grenache when they began to grow it. Oh, and this was hundreds of years ago in the uh, south of France. Terrific grape makes uh, a spectrum of uh, wines. One of the best is a rosé from Grenache. Ours has been a perennial best here on the West Coast for many, many years. <clears throat> we also make a red table wine from it. Wow, it's a food-friendly, delicious wine that has uh, not aggressive tannins, but adequate tannins and just wide appeal at the uh, at the dinner table. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the rosé from Grenache because I don't want you to get me started here, but there's a lot of great rosé out there. And, you know, we've never rated wines or said anything otherwise about different wines. But personally, my opinion, I love rosé from Grenache as opposed to other varietals. Wow, I didn't know you had such a good palate. <laughs> I didn't either. It's just my personal, it's my own personal choice. <laughs> well, you know, our personal palate is the only one we have yeah. because we can't necessarily taste what the other person does. Yeah, that's a that's got to be a beautiful wine, though. Tell us about it. Well, it, uh, it really is. We, uh, we farm it to make a rosé. I think that's one of the critical things, Brian. Uh, if you grow Grenache to make a red table wine and then you, uh, you know, press it real lightly, then the wine comes out with too much, uh, uh, you know, alcohol. Uh, it's not a palatable wine. But if you grow Grenache in a slightly cooler location, which our, our multiple climates here at Abasola allows, uh, then we can uh, can bring that in at just the right bricks, so the alcohol is going to be tamed and make a delightful rosé. And then, on the flip side of that, we grow Grenache for red table grapes on some of our warmest south sloped hills that really heat up. They're twenty five percent warmer than those north slopes where we grow the rosé grapes. Yeah, I appreciate that you explained that because I was going to ask you when you, a lot of times we hear vintners or vineyard experts talk about growing a certain varietal a certain way and they don't explain how and really why they do it. And that makes a lot of sense that you would grow that Grenache, same grape, but a different location, cooler location. And the result would be what we're talking lower sugar. Is that right? When you say bricks, right? Yeah, it's lower sugar levels, and so they convert to less alcohol. Let's talk about Syrah, too. This is one varietal that we love to drink. Uh, really, when the when the leaves start to come off the trees and it gets a little cooler in the fall across the Pacific Northwest, I turn to Syrah, and, and you're doing this varietal as well or better than anybody. Tell us about it. Well, Syrah's been a, a great grape here. When, uh, when we planted it, uh, I don't think any wine had been bottled. Someone else then bottled one like the next year. And I think we bottled maybe the second or third one in Oregon. We went ahead and then by 1995 made Oregon, Southern Oregon's first 95-point Syrah. I think that was the first 95-point wine in Southern Oregon. That was back at the time there'd only been 13, I remember looking this up, 13 95 or greater point wines made in the state. That's remarkable. And and talk about that, too, while we're talking Southern Oregon, and our listeners are downloading this show literally from South Africa to Asia, all around the world, and, and the dramatic difference between Southern Oregon and the Willamette Valley, and it, it truly is a... a very distinct region on its own, isn't it? It is. Yes, the Willamette Valley is a really special climate. It does uh, exceptionally well with uh, Pinot Noir. But when you come on into the warmer reaches of uh, southern Oregon, or for that matter, eastern Oregon, and you get out past Hood River, and you get into uh, Walla Walla and areas like that, uh, Oregon is uh, is not homogeneous. And our climate down here in southern Oregon is is quite warm. 
In fact, uh, for the first two growing season months of April and May, Roseburg had the warmest climate in the state in reference to Milton Freewater, uh, the Blamet, and uh, Medford. It's warm down here. It is warm down there. It's been great to see the growth in that region, too. I know it's been almost 25 years for you, and really the growth of Abacella over the last 25 years really mirrors that of the entire region, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, we were we were not looking to, to grow uh, Pinot Noir. We knew this place was too warm for that. We were not interested in trying to grow Cabernet and Merlot. And, you know, we experimented with all those things. And the ones that work best are now, for us, you know, that was no secret. People quickly figured that out themselves. And these these same grapes, Grenache, Tempranillo, Malbec, are now pretty widely grown down here. They're our best grapes. Let's go back to, I want to revisit Albarino. You talked about that, and we kind of fast-forwarded through to some other varietals, but I know this is a another one that's very near and dear to your heart. Oh, it really is. Uh, Albarino is, uh, I, I saw an interesting wording on it the other, other day. Uh, it's uh, Europe's newest old grape. Now, if you let that soak in a minute, what what the person who wrote that was saying is that Albarino is not made today the way it was 500 years ago. What happened is uh, progress uh, with cold uh, uh, glycol chill stainless steel tanks became widely available in uh, the western reaches of Spain, uh, Galicia particularly, uh, in the late 1980s. And so a grape that had been used, uh, Albarino, that had been used to make a wine very similar to Chardonnay that was heavily oaked from the barrels it was uh, produced and stored in, suddenly uh, was realized to have all these wonderful aromatics, citrusy, peachy elements, and it had a uh, what's often said to be one of those hard-to-put-your-finger-on-things, minerality, sort of a racy quality that tastes like it's water coming over stones uh, tastes like you know of course it's not really mm-hmm. and uh, that occurred in the late 1980s and so we've been making Albarino now this is uh, 19 we've been making it 18, 18 years so that's over half the time that's been made in this style on this planet that's amazing so it really is a new old world wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always great catching up with you. Um, your website is, I love it, because for people who want to learn about wine, um, abacella.com, A-B-A-C-E-L-A.com. If you click on About Us and scroll down to, I mean, you've got such a wealth of information. Just click on Vineyards. Um and I guess I would expect nothing less from you being, you know, the <laughs> with the background you have, being an educator, a researcher, MD, uh, such a great wealth of information here about what's in the vineyard, why things are planted the way they are. Uh, it really is a great resource, Earl. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me tell you about something special we had, did last year. We entered some wines in the American Fine Wine Competition, and we entered our Albarino uh one of our four Tempranillos, uh, we have one for every occasion, and uh, Grenache and Syrah, and they scored between 92 and 95 points. Congratulations. 
I think Andrew did a heck of a job with making those wines, and uh, we're so proud of them. So what are you excited about now? Trying to make them better. <laughs> <laughs> You're not sitting at 92 and 95 and being happy. <laughs> well, we but we have uh, this interesting fault lines effect. There are different soil blocks. We have seven different soils, five primary uh, soil types. Most vineyards have one. Uh, maybe the state of Iowa has two. <laughs> but with a fault line here, it churned up the soils and created some really unusual things. And so that causes us to, I guess, spend too much money. A business person would say, on oh, maybe replanting things to get the ideal soil combo with the microclimate. But we think it's worthwhile. It leads to better ones. The legendary Earl Jones from Abacella. We appreciate him taking time to share his story and his journey with Hilda. And as you just heard there, uh, not sitting around polishing those gold medals and watching the sunset. The journey continues. This winery, an absolute must-see on your next trip to Southern Oregon. Vintage is a presentation of Feedback Media. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.